0: Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. Welcome to episode 28 of this podcast. Whether you are a returning listener or somebody stopping by for the first time, thank you for choosing to spend some time with me. My name is Meg and I'm talking to you from South London in the UK. For anybody new to my Curiosity Cabinet, in this podcast I talk about my making life and love of natural materials. And I unpick some of the whys and wherefores of my projects, from what and how I make to some of the environmental and psychological considerations behind my projects, materials, and processes. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs. M Curiosity Cabinet, and you'll also find show notes at Mrs. M's Curiosity As I've started to film footage of some of my processes and projects, it's also worth looking me up on YouTube under Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet. Videos are definitely only a tiny add-on, but I know that some people enjoy seeing close-ups of what I'm up to. Also, truth be told, as much as I get frustrated at floundering over technology and being rubbish at new things, I'm actually really enjoying learning a new skill that supports my creative practice and voice. How are you all keeping? It's been a while since we last spoke, not because there's been a dearth of activity, but rather that there's been too much going on. High and late summer are always busy time, with spare energy going on preserving seasonal produce, as well as preparing our minute garden, forage materials and the seeds of ideas for the colder, darker months. Be that getting plants established before their winter dormancy or laying the groundwork for projects that can be developed during the short dark days of winter when other activities fall into abeyance. All this means that by the time I get to the evening, there has been little energy to knit and precious little brain capacity to pull together a coherent podcast. But the recent big push on preserving has ended, with satisfying supplies of beans, fruit, chutney, ketchup, and posata laid down for winter and the fibre fog and fatigue of a recent flare-up have eased, so I thought I would pop by and share some of what's been going on in the Curiosity Cabinet. There will be a little bit of knitting, some material processing, and also a spot more tool making. So I hope you have a project and a drink to hand, and let's begin. Oh, and as I know that some people listen to the podcast on their drive home, please drive carefully and stay safe. Even though there hasn't been a lot of knitting in recent months the quality of my current whip is definitely making up for that. As part of Operation Chill there has been a fair amount of sock knitting this year and my current sock project is a rather lovely pairing. A few months ago Julie of Black Isle Yarns asked me if I would be willing to try out her new version of Killen This is a nylon-free sock yarn consisting of 80% blue-faced leicester from the R farm just south of Nairn and 20% South African mohair, all scoured and spun in Yorkshire. Naturally, I jumped at the chance. Partly because non-superwash nylon-free socks are my thing, but mostly because Julie takes such care in sourcing her wools from farms in her area of Scotland and working with mills in the UK that produce spins that showcase the fibre's characteristics to their best. And that's before we even get to Julie's skill as a natural dyer. The skein of wool that arrived took my breath away. BFL is a long fibre luster breed, so you would expect the yarn to have a gleam, but the tightly spun wool combined with the sheen and gentle wisp of the mohair gives the blend an ethereal beauty. Add to that the subtle silvery sage colour produced by the nettle dye bath, and this yarn made me think of water sprites or woodland elves. I knew I needed to pick a pattern that would do justice to this yarn, but I also wanted to use one that would capture something of that magical realm that this wool blend evokes. So I thought I would use Sari Nordland's ballad Sock pattern again, which incorporates a lace design inspired by her famous poet jumper. The stitch pattern, with its winding lace pillars and textured moss stitch lozenges, conjures up an elven palace with twisting branches forming Art Deco-style chambers. Once I was beyond the cuff ribbing, I was delighted to see the magical architecture take shape. Mohair often has a lot of halo that can obscure lace, but the halo in this blend is very slight due to the tightly spun nature of the yarn. The occasional wisp escapes, and these, along with the subtle halo, just add to the misty, ethereal feel of the knitted fabric. I reckon if elves wore socks, they would wear something like these. I knit from the cuff to just above the heel on 2.5mm needles or US 1.5s and then switch to 2.25mm or US 1 needles which actually emphasises the delicate nature of the lace even more. I generally prefer knitting socks on 2.25mm needles as in my experience it's the tension that impacts the durability more than the nylon context. But I sized up for the leg as this pattern is based on 60 stitches rather than 64 and I needed a slightly larger circumference for my calves. Of course, I can't speak to the durability of this yarn yet, but I am hopeful given the twist of the yarn. If anybody has worked with Woolly Mammoth's All Natural Sock Yarn, which is a tightly spun BFL Cheviot blend, the new Killin has a similar high twist. And I know that Julie has been subjecting her test pair to heavy tear and wear ahead of the yarn's launch at Yarndale. As to the particulars, Killen is a two-ply, high-twist yarn that comes in skeins of 100 grams, which gives you 400 metres or about 440 yards. And the price of a skein is £22 or £25 for an undyed or dyed skein, respectively. That is obviously more than a mass-produced superwash nylon blend. But it is a fair price for a small custom spin with provenance and a naturally dyed yarn given the difference in the economies of scale and the sheer amount of time involved in sourcing local dye materials, mordanting yarn and the actual dyeing and curing of it. Julie launched the new Kill and Sock blend at Yarndale last weekend so I'm not sure if it's already available on her website which is blackarelyarns.co.uk or if she's still catching her breath post-show. As regards the ballad sock pattern, that is currently only available via Ravelry, so I will flag that in the episode notes. I did, however, contact the designer a few months back to ask if she had plans to offer her patterns for sale elsewhere, given how many people could not use the redesigned Ravelry. Sari told me that she was aware of the issue and was working on her own website. I'm not sure where she is in that process but if you are interested in this pattern and struggle with revelry, it's worth keeping an eye on her Instagram feed or video podcasts for updates on that. This year I've had to develop my pottery in a different direction due to some of the physical constraints from fibromyalgia. This means I'm currently hand building and coiling instead of throwing processes that involve a more segmented workday as there are regular downtimes between the various steps to allow the clay to firm up. Rather than dwell on how frustrating enforced change and segmentation are, I've been using these pockets of time for some creative weaving and to take ideas I've been exploring in my sketchbook off the page and into a form and medium that I enjoy. This approach and mindset may sound familiar to others living with chronic fatigue or pain. We often have to pivot due to circumstances and it's very easy to get down in the dumps about what we are losing. I find psychologically casting the alternative as a worthwhile project on its own terms rather than as a fallback or consolation prize can really help me. Not immediately and not every day of course. There are days when I want to rant at how unfair it feels. But on the whole, focusing on what is feasible rather than what isn't is helping me move forward. Turning creative ideas into woven pieces does, of course, involve materials and equipment. And for a resource conscious person like myself, that gives me pause for thought. On a practical level, like most people, I'm working with a limited budget. But from an environmental perspective, I also struggle to justify buying new or more stuff, particularly for purely artistic work. Thirdly, the materials I use are as much a part of the ideas I want to explore, and those materials are not necessarily readily available off the shelf. These considerations means that for several pieces of work, I've been sourcing my weaving materials from my garden and doorstep, and on my daily walks around the neighbourhood. Anybody who has followed me for some while knows I enjoy foraging for local colour and hedgerow produce. This year I've taken this to another level, and the process has been fascinating in many respects. Just as with foraging for food and colour, sourcing fibre in our local area is a process that involves seeing, learning, recognising and forging many new connections. I have known for many years that nettles are a source of fine fibres, that bramble cord has been used down the centuries in Britain, and that you can make cord out of daffodil leaves. But it's not until I actually started picking and processing plants for fibre myself that I got a feel for what was actually involved. What I need to look for in the plant, what I'm actually allowed to pick by law, which stalks or leaves make good cord, when to harvest them or how to process them, what muscles and memory are involved, and how to work with them. I've only dipped my toe into this, and I've only worked with a handful of fibres so far, but I've already gained more than just a small collection of cord bundles made from cordline, brambles, flag iris, and lavender. I won't go into too many details about how to make string from plants, as I'm just starting out, and there are loads of videos online about the process, in styles to suit anybody's tastes from testosterone-loaded survivalists to archaeologists waxing lyrical about the ply structure of ancient cord preserved in bogs, and everything in between. So far, I've used two basic methods for processing plants into weaving material. There are the long thin leaves, like the cord line I find in the next street along, or the flag iris from the seasonal pond on the heath. I simply strip these down lengthways into narrow ribbons using my fingernails, dispensing with the tougher middle vein and winding them up for plying later. For things like rambles, nettles and lavender, I strip the green outer bark with a non-serrated table knife. Then I gently hit the plant stalk with a stone or a pestle to start to ease the fibre away from the pith. Then I go in with my fingers to gently tease the fibres away from the pith before once again winding it into bundles for drying and future plying. The plying method is a simple process of twisting a few starter stems till they bend back on themselves. I then take the upper ends, twist them away from me before bringing them towards me over the lower ends. These become the upper ends that I twist together away from me before once again bringing them towards my body and over the lower ends. I would add that I'm right-handed. If you're left-handed, the process is similar, but upside down, as it were. If you're interested, Sally Pointer demonstrates both on her videos, which fall into the no-nonsense practical archaeology range of the spectrum. To make a comparison with spinning, this process effectively involves spin half an inch and ply half an inch, spin and ply, spin and ply, rather than spinning full bobbins and then plying them together, as I would do on a spinning wheel. I completely recognise that cordage making for a couple of art pieces is not on everybody's project list. I also know that there are many fibre folk and artists with much more experience with these kinds of natural materials than me. So why did I decide to include it here? Partly because it is part of my current making life, but also because insights and understandings of a material and process differ from person to person, based on our particular hinterland of experiences, skills and interests. And because many of the questions and responses that the process has prompted are hardly unique to this particular material or project. So, what are my key takeaways from the process so far? On a purely practical level, as with all foraging, it's essential not to overforage with fibre processing all the more so. I find the initial processing step, be that stripping long leaves or removing bark and pith, easier when the material is relatively fresh. So I have got into the habit of processing in the evening the few stems or leaves I pick during the day. For bramble that works out at about three or four canes and with iris leaves eight to a dozen leaves. Such bite-sized foraging and processing may sound like a poor use of time and would certainly not be cost-effective if our survival relied on sourcing and making almost all of what we needed ourselves, as it has been down the ages. But this rate of working actually has upsides for me. It nudges me to get out for a short walk, even on the days that I'm not feeling great or I'm particularly fatigued. Another takeaway is that all the materials involve some initial processing while fresh, followed by drying time, before re-wetting them again to actually make the cord. Just as with foraging, the re-wetting for string making is best done in bite-sized steps, only soaking as much material as I can reasonably process in one sitting. So once again, the process actually dovetails nicely with my segmented way of working and my fluctuating levels of energy. Back in the centuries when households produced most of the string they needed for their domestic and farming needs, I suspect the sourcing of material and initial processing probably happened at particular points in the growing year, and the cord making will have been a job that could have been deferred for quieter times in the farming year. Additionally, I suspect the actual twisting and plying probably happened in the evening, as it's a job that can easily be done in low light levels, relying on feel and muscle memory. Whereas things like sewing or net making would have required the last of the daylight or precious candlelight, I reckon string making is something they could do by the light of the fire at the end of the day, much as we might knit or spin in semi-darkness these days while watching television, listening to music or chatting. It may seem a bit odd in this day and age to value making tasks that can happen in low light levels, but as an environmentalist whose background was in the energy sector, I am acutely aware of energy usage and savings. And given how gas prices and network disruptions, as well as low wind and sun levels, are affecting the power network in the UK at the moment, awareness of the precious nature of electricity is not just the preserve of energy geeks and environmentalists. Another thing that foraging and processing local plant fibre brings home is just how abundant the natural world is. Even the scraps of nature we find in highly built-up urban settings, and also how much resource efficiency wisdom is embedded in traditional skills. I don't mean this in the sense that there is an abundant pool of resources out there to be plundered. Rather, that when we begin to look at the natural world and its cycles and interconnections, We appreciate that there were many ways that humans down the ages have managed to meet practical needs with sound use of locally available resources. The flora, and for that matter fauna and minerals, vary widely from region to region, but even with such geographic constraints, there is a wealth of possibilities depending on the season and the purpose. Some plants might be more efficient to process than others, say nettle and bramble rather than lavender fiber. But for millennia, there was an ecosystem of plants that humans had the ingenuity, curiosity and skill to explore in order to fashion them into materials that didn't just meet basic tasks, but added beauty and meaning to their lives and society. And for all our supposed technological advancement... In many ways, that traditional approach reliant on local know-how feels more sensible to me than just mindlessly hopping onto the internet to order whatever we need, whenever we need it. At both the picking and the initial processing stage, I'm repeatedly struck by the environmental soundness of locally sourced string. Although I take great efforts to forage considerately so I don't deprive the local wildlife of what it needs, it dawned on me that usually what I pick was not depriving the local wildlife of nutrients. For example, I harvest lavender stalks after the lavender flowers have faded and been depleted of nectar, or after the iris has flowered and the nutrients in the leaves seep back into the roots. Or oh, in the case of brambles, the part of the plant that makes good fibre are the long canes that don't bear flowers or fruit. You probably know those long, triffid-like canes that the council might trim back once a year to prevent overgrown footpaths. Also, when I look at the bark and pith peelings that remain from the initial processing, I love how this debris isn't actually waste. In centuries gone by, it might have been twisted into faggots for lighting a fire, but even in this day and age, it still has a value as feedstock for the compost heap. And similarly, after use, such string will just compost down and return to the earth. I totally acknowledge that there is a place for steel cables on rail and motorway suspension bridges, or that there is merit in polyester force straps lifting loads on construction sites. But arguably, when it comes to things like lashing bales of straw together, setting up grow supports for beans, or tying plants together before hanging them up to dry, maybe in those contexts it would make more sense to use string produced from locally sourced sustainable crops. The minimal waste nature of local string has got me thinking about plants I would like to use for future string and how they sit beautifully in my aims for a minimal waste creative practice, inspired by iris leaves. There might be onion and schlotwine in future. How wonderful that I get to eat the alliums I can grow, use the skim for natural dyes, and the leaves for string or when it comes to nettles or brambles, some pickings end up in soup, cheese, and jams. Leaves can go into the dye pot, and the stems and canes can become cordage. Obviously, this kind of making takes time, and time is a precious resource too. And I'm certainly not suggesting everybody needs to rush out and start making string. Rather, looking at something as mundane as string and exploring what might go into making it in its various forms offers an opportunity to think about the many other everyday objects we take for granted, to question whether the inputs, outputs, impacts and wastes are appropriate for their purpose, and then maybe to dispense with some of the less essential ones, or think differently about how we might meet certain practical needs ourselves in a slightly more proportionate way. I've shot a little footage of the process of turning bramble canes into fibre. If all goes well with our currently flaky Broadburn, it should be up by the time this podcast goes live, so do please keep an eye out on YouTube. Last episode I shared a spot of tool making, and there have been more tools taking shape over the summer. One set has been tools for the weaving work that is happening behind the scenes. When I'm weaving cloth, I use a boat shuttle. This wooden tool looks like an elongated kayak, is about four centimetres or one and a half inches wide and about two and a half centimetres or an inch deep, and it holds a bobbin in its centre. It's incredibly handy for shooting the shuttle through the shed of a shaft loom, which is very hard to say, but it's totally inappropriate for tapestry weaving on a frame loom. The latter typically involves stick shuttles or bobbins or even hand-wound bundles of yarn. As I tend to weave with high twist single ply wool I've struggled to work with butterfly wound bundles of yarn. The tight twist means the butterflies turn into stroppy bundles rather than unfurling neatly. So instead I settled on using small stick shuttles. Individually these are not particularly expensive but depending on your design you would need a few of them loaded up at any one time. Also, they tend to only be available in lengths of 15 centimetres or more. So I decided to make some myself. As the name suggests, these shuttles are basically sticks with an arched shape cut out at the end. The large ones I own for my cloth weaving loom are made of thin plywood. But as I wanted to work with simple hand tools, I sourced a thin plank, about three millimetres or an eighth of an inch of lime wood from a local shop. Limewood, or basswood as it's known in the US, comes from the linden tree, also known as tillia, and it's quite a soft wood, so you can cut into thin sheets with a craft knife. Limewood also grows abundantly in the UK, even in residential streets like my own, so it felt like both a responsible and appropriate material to use. Tool-wise, I've been using a scalpel or Stanley knife, a cutting mat, a ruler with a cutting edge, a pencil and fine sandpaper. So nothing particularly hardcore. Due to the thinness of the sheet and the softness of the wood it was very easy to cut the long sides of the shuttle. After several scores of the wood along the grain I could easily snap away a length of limewood of about two centimetres or three quarters of an inch wide from the rest of the sheet. Cutting the length into three or four shed blanks required a bit more scoring on both sides of the plank in order to cut across the grain, but it wasn't particularly taxing. I then copied the arch-like slot from my shop-bought shuttle onto each end of the blank. As going across the grain requires more pressure and I wasn't sure I could manage the pressure and control needed to cut a nice curve, I just scored two straight lines along the legs of the curve and then connected those scored cuts at at a right angle to produce a tiny oblong cutout at the end of the shuttle rather than an arch. The action I used to cut this small cross grain line was more of a succession of steps rather than a clean score. As I was scoring, stabbing and snapping rather than cutting straight through I went back along every cut edge with a fine grit sandpaper to get rid of the rough edges. If I were using plywood rather than lime wood I would have started with a heavier grit and worked my way down but the lime is so soft that a fine grit works from the outset. I wrapped the sandpaper around a block for easier gripping when working the outer edges of the shuttle, but I popped a tiny strip around a pencil to sand the cutouts. I also rounded off the four corners of the shuttles a little, as per the shop-bought ones. The 15 by 60 centimetres or 6 by 24 inches sheet of wood would be large enough to make several dozen shuttles, but I started off with about six or eight. Partly because that would get me up and running with the design I had in mind, but also because I wanted to see how the shuttles handled in practice. Like a lot of people who work with their hands and old-fashioned skills, I'm a bit particular about tools. Not in a precious it-must-be-an-expensive tool or this-particular-brand kind of way. You may have noticed that I don't generally talk about which brand or models of tools I use in my crafts. Rather, I'm particular about how tools handle and feel in the hand, about things like how they are weighted, how they grip, the finish of an edge, and if they involve a blade, how well it's sharpened. We often don't really know how well or poorly designed and made tools are until we've worked with them for some time. By working with the shuttles I quickly got a feel of what kind of bevel on the edge allows the shuttles to pass easily through the warp without compromising their sturdiness. Or what a good ratio of overall length to cutout size is to allow me to load up the shuttle with enough wool to build up a good weaving tempo but not so much it struggles through the warp. Once I'd figured these things out it was easy enough to go back and refine my starter shuttles with a bit of sandpaper and then make some more with a slightly tweaked proportions. Last episode I mentioned how satisfying it is to make tools out of waste materials. This tool making project, along with making the actual frame loom itself, has arguably been even more satisfying. I've been able to equip myself with almost all the tools I need for tapestry weaving from readily available, affordable materials and a few hours of work, saving myself a fortune. Moreover, I've been able to make them to a spec that works for me and my ideas. They may not be particularly sophisticated, but they are doing the job perfectly well, sit comfortably in my hand and can easily be stored away. Finally, there is something incredibly gratifying and empowering about knowing we are capable of making not just a project we envisage, but also some of the tools we need in the making process. It's similar to not just being able to cook a dish, but also being able to grow a couple of the ingredients too, even if it's just the herbs for that dish. For me, that really heightens the enjoyment of the process and the end product, as well as my own sense of agency. On that gushing and slightly bolshy note, I think I will call it a day. As always, please do let me know what you are working on and how your making is impacting on your sense of agency. Or if excitement, wonder or curiosity about one type of making is causing waves in another, possibly more mundane area of your life. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy many hours of making, whatever that may look like for you and whatever your medium may be.